Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. And to be really honest, I can really use your direct support during this time. Please, of course, do take care of yourself and your loved ones first. But if you are able to become a patron starting at just $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. And thank you so, so much to our existing patrons. It really helps a lot. I think the rise of headline news, the rise of 24-hour cable news, the rise of social media and performative activism kind of things all might have us thinking that the world has never been worse than it is right now. And I just don't believe that's true. That was Jeremy Courtney, the author of Love Anyway, a global speaker on the integration of activism, spirituality, leadership, and service, and the author and CEO of Preemptive Love, which is a relief and job creation community working to end war. Stay tuned as we're about to explore the relationship between ecological degradation and global conflicts, how we can actually use love to come together as one world rather than allow our differences to keep dividing us and potentially perpetuate more wars and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Yeah, so I was in graduate school. I had just started when the terror attacks on September 11th took place in the United States. And I had, in many ways, my whole life ahead of me. Uh, my wife and I had just gotten married. We'd just graduated from college and started grad school. And everything was still ahead of us. And the entire world that I knew turned its face toward war. I literally had no access no experience of anyone in my entire life opposing the war effort after September 11th. I literally did not know that there was anyone that opposed the war effort until much later in life when I started to look back through archival footage and news stories and things like that. So a lot of our world turned toward war personally. And it it helped catalyze us out of the United States and into the world. So there's a lot of the story that I'll need to fast forward. I've written about it more in my book, but long story short, fast forward a couple of years and we end up living in Iraq as humanitarians. We took a turn that was a little bit different than some of our friends and neighbors and family and people that we loved. And we found ourselves in Iraq in the middle of the war, wanting to do things a little bit differently. So that's that's kind of the early catalyst of how we ended up overseas. Right. So after having spent some time in Iraq in the war zones, your perspectives on what it means to help other people who aren't like you had changed. What was that light bulb moment for you and the new realizations that you made? You know, there were some big aha moments, but there was also a accumulation of just so many relationships and experiences along the way. Maybe one of the biggest aha moments came 
with a little girl that I met in a hotel cafe. Her dad appealed to me to help save his daughter's life. He told me that she was born with a life-threatening heart defect. And he basically said that our, our country cannot save her life now, but you're an American. You came here to help us. So would you help my daughter? And so through working with this family, we set about trying to help this this one little girl. And in the process of helping one little girl, I started learning more and more about the war, learned about people all over the country, because people just started finding their way to me and to our family and our friends who were starting to help this little girl. And they were looking to us to help their kids as well. So kids just started coming out of the woodwork. Families started coming out of the woodwork. And one of the stories that we kept hearing over and over and over again is that our kids are being born in Iraq with life-threatening birth defects. And one of the reasons is environmental fallout of war, the environmental impact of war. And one of the things that they were talking about over and over again is the, the use of chemical weapons in war and how that was creating a literally toxic environment that was making women sick when they got pregnant, that was making that was causing women to give birth to to children that were that were born with birth defects. And so that that was a really harrowing moment for me. Suddenly now war wasn't just about a single bomb or a single bullet or even an army. It was it was about generational impact, both psychological, traumatic, and environmental. At this point you've been working to support the pacifist movement for about a decade. And I know you're very aware of our global power structures out at play, the justifications or lack thereof for these wars being started and perpetuated, and also their direct and long-term impacts. But you have a perspective that is quite unique in that having been living in the Middle East, you don't need to be told by the U.S. media what's happening and why from a single angle. You've been able to speak to people on the grounds and get a quite holistic view of these conflicts firsthand. Based on your experience, how much do you think the average American has been misinformed or even are just unaware of the United States' role in these wars? Yeah, I would say the citizenry of pretty much any country is, pick a number, 80%, 95% naive and ignorant as to what is going on around the world. And what is even going on across the city that they live in in their own country? I think most of us are just generally not investing the kind of time that would be required to know people from different perspectives, to know people who are impacted by our votes, who are impacted by our spending, who are impacted by our stereotypes and biases that we hold, whether we hold them on purpose or on accident. So. It's not just an American thing, I guess is what I want to draw a little bit of attention to, but there are few countries who, when they make a mistake or when they make a decision, carry the kind of global impact that the United States carries. And so I do think as an American, I, I feel a special sense of responsibility for the role that America can play in the world for good and the sometimes clumsy and unintended and maybe intended consequences of America's foolish or, or 
arrogant actions in the world mm. as well. It definitely sounds like a lot of our social, ecologic crises around the world today stem from people's disconnect to the sources of these issues. And that's not necessarily the individual's fault because it is hard to keep track of everything that's happening around the entire world. And the supply chains of our consumer products today are so complex. It's just hard to keep track of all of these things. But in a globalized world, a lot of the decisions that we make locally can have global effects. So I guess that's that's a big challenge right there. You're right. And we all seem to realize this is not an original statement, but it's it's pressing on us nonetheless that we we are on some real sense more connected than ever, yet we still in many cases remain deeply divided or or disconnected in the sense that we don't truly understand the impact or, or the integrated interconnectedness that that we have as I, I was going to say humanity, but it's actually even more than humanity. It's it's just the connectedness of the planet. I don't mean that in a in a you know like a woo woo kind of way. I think there there are just very nuts and bolts kinds of ways in which we are deeply interconnected and reliant on our environment, and we are clearly destroying it. And therefore, it is not going to be able to sustain us in this way much longer. So maybe we're more connected than ever before, especially with the internet, but we're more superficially connected in that because we don't really deeply understand other people, we resort to using labels to try to quickly help us to gain an understanding of what somebody else is like, rather than having a true connection with other people and with other elements of of the world. Look, I think a lot of this is a bit like a Rorschach test in the short term. I am of the opinion that in the long term, even our superficial interconnectedness, as you call it, has a strong potential to upgrade us in the sense of causing us, helping us open our heart up to people who are not like us, to expressions and viewpoints and realities that are not like us. I'm hopeful, I'm bullish on our capacity to increase our care and inclusion for each other. But I do think in the short term, it's going to continue to create disruptions and great pain. And it's going to kind of help people see what they want to see and entrench themselves further in their kind of ideological ghettos. So the internet helps climate change deniers find pseudoscience that can help them feel more justified in denying climate change. The internet helps people who are deeply, passionately traditionalist about old views of gender and sexuality maintain that with a, a kind of rigor that, that would have not been possible in the same way before we were interconnected. But I think if we play it out over the long haul, we are getting exposed to ideas, we are getting exposed to people, we are getting exposed to experiences across the world that's going to cause us to have more empathy for each other. And if you can use this word, more empathy for the environment as well. Mm. And I know you've had very personal experiences being sort of 
right-wing fundamentalist and then left-wing fundamentalist and then <laughs> kind of being able to oversee all of that and get a whole different perspective when you came out of both sides. So can you talk a little bit about the greatest learning lessons you had from that? Yeah, I think it's a really natural thing that we do in life. I like to draw it. If our listeners and friends here can picture like a triangle, a, a line that runs from point A to point B across the bottom of your screen or the bottom of your piece of paper, that's the move and sometimes the only move that a lot of us make in life. We, we have this point A position that we hold, this community that we were born into, a, a religious group or political viewpoint that we were, culture that we were born into. And we wake up, we grow up, we mature, we leave home in some way, and we move from that point A to point B. And for some of us, that's the only massive rebirth or life change or waking up that we do. And so we take on the zeal of point B with the same kind of passion that we used to hold point A. So we we can often become just as mean-spirited, exclusionary, rejectionist at our point B location as we used to be in our point A posture toward the world. And I've done that. I've done that move a couple times now. But if you think back to that triangle, there's, there's another move. So if you go point A to point B across the bottom, then there's that, that move back to the middle but it goes up toward the higher part of the triangle, the, the middle point. And that's the move that I think we should all be striving for, praying for, meditating toward, researching and reading for, that, that place where we kind of transcend it all, we, we rise above it all. And from that higher elevation, we can see the rightness of point A, where we came from. We can see the rightness of point B, where we went to and then came from and then we can synthesize it all that's kind of this hegelian dialectic thing where you have a a thesis you have an antithesis and then you move to a place of synthesis and so yeah i've done those moves and then your new point that you call synthesis it becomes a starting point for your next journey and then you kind of do the cycle all over again and i think that's how we rise above and it's how we move things down the road of history in a positive way hopefully mm. Something that stood out to me is a statement on your website that war actually starts long before we think it does in our hearts and our language and in the ways that we draw lines. We're at a time when there seems to be escalating tensions between countries and also between groups of people in the same countries and so on. Of course, every situation is unique, but what are some of the common underlying causes you found of this general trends of increasing divides? And then, of course, how does climate change or our ecological degradation play into this? So on the long haul, if we, if we were to pull back our timeline over the course of centuries, I think we have a lot to be happy about as it relates to violence, mm -hmm. a, a general and arguable decrease in violence over the course of centuries. There is research and reason to believe that we are far, far less violent toward one another in so many areas than we used to be. The, the emphasis on human rights, the, the gains that we have seen even in this last 50, 60 years for all kinds of minority groups 
are all pointing us in the right direction. Now, do we still have a ways to go? For sure. Is there still great reason for minority voices and minority experiences to say we are not equal yet? Absolutely, there are. But but if you pull back and look at the macro data, we're headed in the right direction. The, the, the trend lines are all going down in the best ways for us. So that's something that I don't think we talk about enough. I think the rise of headline news, the rise of 24-hour cable news, the rise of social media and performative activism kind of things all might have us thinking that the world has never been worse than it is right now. And I just don't believe that's true. I think a lot about care and inclusion. That's kind of how I seek to orient myself to the world. And I'm trying to figure out better and better ways that we can measure that in the world. But if we were to think, if we were to monitor care and inclusion, I would dare argue we have never as humanity been more caring and more inclusive of more kinds of people from more walks of life across more geographies across more socioeconomic classes and more religious spiritual viewpoints and more political viewpoints than we are today. So in that way, I'm very hopeful and I want to continue to orient my life and the work of preemptive love toward heightening that capacity for caring and inclusion even more because we're not where we need to be yet. And I think that care and inclusion has to include the environment and it has to include how we think about our, our relationship to the environment that sustains us. And I'll be honest, I don't remember exactly your original question, but that's my first pass at a response for you. Yeah. My other question is how do, I guess, climate change and our continued environmental degradation, how have they perhaps contributed to escalating conflicts around the world? So here's the sad, sad irony, I guess, is that we have never had arguably this many people in the world who are more cognizant of and caring for the planet. Unfortunately, the damage has probably been done by this point and is approaching irreversible, according to many. So it may be in some ways too late for us to have reached this point of actually caring about the environment. Some of these things start to set, they're like a flywheel and they start to set themselves in motion and we, we can't stop the negative degradation as, as you called it. There is the, the, the cycle of climate change, displacing people from their homes and then people being displaced from their homes, moving into a new environment, causing the desertification of that environment or the deforestation of that environment, having to live off of poor water resources of that environment, cutting down trees so that they can use it for fuel wood in their refugee camps, which then leads to generational climate factors in that new place that they settled, which then infuriates the host community that was giving them some kind of home and hospitality. This, these cycles are, are now replete throughout the world. And so we have been hearing a lot about the refugee crisis over the last four or five years, right? But I think what we're going to start hearing about more and more and more is the climate refugee. Mm. Even Syria's civil war, which we mostly only talk about in political terms, 
and violence terms. There is some research that strongly suggests that the Syrian civil war was partly set off by a drought where three out of four farms failed, driving people from the countrysides into the cities, putting stressors on the cities, and then starting to set off some of the political chaos that we saw in the Arab Spring of 2011. So climate is a factor now, climate change and the fallout from emissions and things like that. These are all factors that are almost inextricable from from the human movements and the human toll and the, the price that people pay as they run for their lives. And I think more is more is on our horizon, unfortunately. What seems quite unethical is that it's often countries like the United States or the more developed world that is contributing the most to climate change in the form of emissions. This then leads to the displacement of people, frontline communities who are no longer able to live or grow food where they are or work there. So they may need to migrate to other places. And then countries like the United States, at least, is sort of demonizing immigrants. That whole cycle for, you know, really causing the issues that led to people's displacement in the first place and then demonizing the people that are really in desperation trying to just live and be able to provide for their children and their families. That whole cycle is quite vicious as well. It is. And and this is one of the reasons why it's imperative that global leaders sign on to global compacts and, and accords that seek for robust institutions and robust international, intergovernmental, intercorporation commitments to try to roll back the tide of climate change. If the only way forward on this is institutional systemic change. There is no manner, there's no degree of changing our light bulbs and conserving our tap water alone that is going to get us to where we need to go. That, I mean, we should all do our part, sure, but one of the things that we must do, our part, really has to do with electing leaders who are committed to institutional systemic robustness. Anything short of UN-level multilateral deals is not going to be enough to get the job done. Mm. You look at a country where I live, I live in Iraq, and just even in the last year, some of this isn't even directly attributed, like some of the the cycles that you are touching off on here involve more localized realities where you've got what we all know most commonly is like the Tigris and the Euphrates River has lost like 30% of its water over the last years, last couple of years. 30% of its water has dried up. We're, we're probably headed towards something like 50% according to the government over the next couple of years. 50% of the Tigris and Euphrates water has dried up. Now, that's not merely because of global warming. It's partially because Turkey and Iran upstream are not allowing as much water to flow south toward the Persian Gulf. So -hmm. when you follow that water flow, damming international water rights, all that stuff, when you when you follow it downstream, then you by the time you get to southern Iraq, 
you start to see 30% of the cattle dying in the South. You start to see significantly less wheat and barley being farmed. You see then farmers going out of work and now you get tribes arguing over water rights and then that leads to conflict. And then you go all the way further south from that into Kuwait and you get Kuwait ending up having to ship water into Iraq just to stave off conflict because Kuwait can still remember 1990 when Iraq invaded Iraq hasn't even paid back $4.6 billion that they owe Kuwait because of the war that they set off in 1990. But imagine, Iraq owes them $4.6 billion for invading their country, mm. and Kuwait is sending water to Iraq to save the day just to help stave off conflict. So who do you blame in that environment? Do you, do you blame global climate factors? Do you blame Turkey and Iran at the top of the river? for cutting off flow, you know, like it, there's so many factors and so many points along the way that we have to work on robust intergovernmental accords that, that help govern the change and govern the allocation and access to resources themselves. Right. And it sounds like one of the bigger challenges is that climate change and our environmental issues altogether, biodiversity loss and so forth, these are really issues that we have to face together and we have to unite to deal with together. But at the same time, environmental degradation, increasing scarcity of natural resources and climate change is also leading to more conflict at the same time. So we, there's exactly. kind of two forces working against each other. You know, we really have to unify. But at the same time, these things that are already happening is already causing more conflict. That's 100% right. And that's why I believe so profoundly in charisma and communication and character when it comes to our global leaders. I, I think that's why personality matters. It's why believability matters. It's why, it's why we need leaders who have the trust of the world and who know how to surround themselves with experts, with policy experts, with people who have good experience and global experience with people who believe in institutions who who believe in bureaucracy on some level and don't believe that that institutions and layers of management and layers of expertise are inherently evil and i think we we are seeing the rise of a kind of populism in parts of the world that that caused me grave concern that we are dismantling the very institutions that we need to guard us and the only kinds of people who can rise above the, the sort of dual-sided reinforcing of conflict that you described are, are winsome leaders of good character and charisma who can, who can be diplomatic and find a way through the, the chaos of it all. Well, I think overall, the idea of pro-peace, of course, is a really unifying one. And as maybe proof of this, your staff and volunteer base include Muslims and Christians, Iraq War veterans and pacifists, conservatives and liberals. So my question is, when the majority of the people want to choose love and peace, but it's often the people at the top who hold the power to fire the weapons and drop the bombs that are sort of gamifying other people's lives to fight over their goals, their ideologies, and their power struggles. How do we work with that and actually use love 
to overpower or diffuse the militarized responses to conflicts? It starts with our votes in most of our countries. Many of our countries espouse some kind of democracy, at least on the face. Not all function the same. Not all are equally robust. And some are very much under attack right now. But I, I think that our votes matter on balance across the world. And we should continue to work to promote that and to strengthen democracies and to promote journalism and to promote the, the free exchange of ideas. We should work to not give in to cancel culture. We should not practice on Twitter the very thing we, we claim that we don't want to practice with bombs and bullets, which is essentially decimating each other with our words. If, if we don't think that we should decimate each other with bombs and bullets, then we should not decimate each other with words on Twitter or in the school cafeteria either. We, we should work to uphold these values of inclusion and care and belonging across the board, across the spectrum of traditionalism versus progressivism, of religion versus non-religion, of leftist and rightist thought and policy. So that, that's where I would want to continue to to start, like we have to continue to believe the best about democracy and the power of our votes and the power of our interconnectedness. I think we have to get in the room with each other. I think we have to, now we have to work to replace some of the institutions that are so falling apart. The church is weaker, arguably, than it's maybe ever been. The, the mosque finds itself in a weakened state across the world in many ways. Populism is creating a kind of weakening in government structures and institutionalism. There's a, there's a target on the back of the UN and various multilateral organizations and agreements like that. So what's going to replace it? What kind of institutions or networks are going to replace it? I'll just say one of the things that we're working on at Preemptive Love is a global network of peacemakers who would cast a vote in South Korea with an awareness of what's going on in Venezuela, with, with a, an awareness of what's going on in North Korea, with a deep concern for what's going on in Syria. We are, like I said before, we're connected. We've got Facebook to, to bring us all together, three billion of us on Facebook. But, but are we hearing from each other the way we need to? Are we, are we really understanding each other so that our, our connectedness will change the way we vote? So we're building the largest, most diverse community of peacemakers on the planet so that we can really hear from people who are different than us, so that we can empathize with the refugee on the run. We can empathize with someone who holds a completely different view of sexuality than I might or a, a completely different political ethic than I might. So if that's of interest to anyone listening, you can find more about that at loveanyway.com gather. These gatherings are, are small monthly gatherings that we're rolling out all over the world where people get together in their living rooms across some kind of line of difference, political, religious, whatever, and say we are committing to come together even though we're different and love each other anyway. We all are strong people Working hard every day and night Trying to make the world peaceful And we won't give up without a fight
What's an uplifting social media account or a publication you follow, or a book that's been really profound for you? Look, I'll tell you what a lot of people tell me. No <laughs> bias here. That the preemptive love Instagram account is full of hopeful, uplifting stories. It it is a favorite for for so many people. So I would I would strongly recommend check out the work that our team is doing across the world at Preemptive Love. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? You know, I think about the various people that I have been throughout my life. Rather than dissociate myself from the person that I used to be, so to speak, that I don't agree with that guy anymore. I, I don't hold the views that that guy held 20 years ago. I'm not maybe as arrogant as that guy was 20 years ago. Rather than dissociate myself from that guy and reject that guy and shame that guy and be embarrassed by that guy, I, I thank that guy. I bless that guy because I think he carried me on his shoulders or in his womb, so to speak, <laughs> to where I am today and, and gave birth to the guy that I am today. And so I'm gentle with the guy that I am today as well because I imagine that this guy I am today is about to give birth to someone new as well. And I think as I've learned to be kind with myself, past, present, and future, it helps me be more kind to whoever I might encounter in my life today. I remember whoever they are now is not necessarily who they're going to be tomorrow. And so there's hope for all of us. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? I would say that that thing I just said is what I'm working on for my health as well. It's a, it's a constant mental health discipline to try and love myself better and love the people around me better. Also, I am eating significantly less meat over the last three months or so. I haven't made a commitment to go full vegetarian or anything like that yet, but finding my way toward the discipline of of being more cognizant of what I eat and deliberately trying to eat a lot less meat and, and trying to understand what that has in terms of impact on me and what kind of impact I'm having in the environment. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our world? I'm working with this beautiful team at Preemptive Love around the world as we're trying to build the largest, most diverse community of peacemakers on the planet to end war. And finally, what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? I, I take a lot of heart from some of the macro trends of where I think we've been headed over the last centuries. I, I would guess that there are very few of us who could pick a time in history and go back there that, that we would want to move our life totally back to the past and live in that place altogether. We are better off 
in so many ways than we've ever been. But I don't think that's predictive of the future necessarily. I, I think the climate crisis that is upon us could erase so many of the gains that we've made to end war, toward ending war. I think the technology stack that is on our horizon in terms of automation and the massive displacement that we'll have on the human workforce could send us into a spiral of violence unlike anything we've ever seen. So I have, I have real cautions, but I, I just, I believe we have heightened our capacity to hear one another, to understand one another, to care and include one another. And I take a lot of heart from that. And I think we can keep down that road and make significantly greater improvements yet to come. Well, Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Jeremy's work at Preemptive Love, you can head to www.preemptivelove.org. And you can also follow them on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Preemptive Love. You can also find Jeremy on Instagram at the J Court and on Twitter at J Court. Thank you so much for joining us today and for all you do for a more peaceful and more harmonious world. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Some of this stuff is hard, but it's worth it, and it only happens as we take one small step at a time. So don't get discouraged uh, when you're not seeing all the change that you want to see in the world. Just keep pressing into the pain and keep going one step at a time. <laughs>